welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes and Google Podcasts and sponsored by Jetliner Cabin's ebook app. This is episode 59 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby and I'm joined by my co-host Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mary. Very busy. It's a three podcast week for me, so I'm, oh I'm, I'm pretty wrapped up. Yeah, yeah, but that's great. <laughs> No rest for the weary or wicked there, Max. I guess. <laughs> um, before we get started, we'd like to thank the Jetliner Cabins ebook app for sponsoring this week's podcast. Jetliner Cabins is the story of how scientists, designers, engineers, maintenance, and marketing specialists have transformed the stark tubular interiors of typical airliners into unique settings. This ebook app invites readers to explore the expertise, discover the details, and enjoy the fascinating world of Jetliner Cabins. Visit jetlinercabins.com to learn more and to download the app. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest today. John O'Graybill is a FAA designated master pilot with over 50 years of aviation experience. After John's wife had a near-death experience as a passenger in a friend's private airplane, John wrote the book Private Airplane Passenger Safety, What You Need to Know, as a guide to help other passengers know if their pilot and their flight will be a safe one. In his book, Graybill identifies what passengers need to know in easy-to-understand, non-technical language, and he alerts them to pilot actions, behaviors, and attitudes that could lead to a crash, personal injury, or worse. Welcome to the show, John. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. I'm very concerned about uh, passengers and their perceptions of whether or not a flight is going to be as safe as it can be. So I wrote the book, which has... uh, observations that a passenger might make of their pilot and to then come to some conclusion about whether or not the flight is going to be as safe as it can be based on the pilot's behaviors. John, I think that's fascinating that you've looked at airplane safety from the passenger's viewpoint. We're also used to looking at it from the pilot's perspective. But why don't we jump right in and take a look at some of the PaxX news stories that are making headlines First, while the business aviation market has grappled with a softening for the last several years, business aircraft charters are on the rise, especially with younger travelers. John, given your background in your book, can you tell us about the safety considerations for booking private aircraft? Sure. The main consideration is to look at the pilot and understand what the pilot is thinking and how he or she is behaving. And the book provides the details regarding specific observations that one might make of the pilot. And then I rank each observation with a red flag or a yellow flag. A red flag observation is bad. You probably should reconsider making the trip as a passenger. Uh, On the other hand, there are some yellow flag observations that might be okay uh, if there's only one or two yellow flag observations. But if there are three or more or one red flag observation, then I strongly encourage the passenger or prospective passenger to reconsider and maybe not make the trip. John, can you give us an idea of some of the red flag observations in retrospect that you observed um, with respect to your, your wife's experience? 
Well, one thing is the existence of an airworthiness certificate. Every aircraft that's authorized to fly in the United States has to have a valid airworthiness certificate, and it has to be posted in the cabin of the airplane in plain view. Now, this is sort of a mundane issue, but it's very important. If for some reason a passenger could not determine that there was a valid airworthiness certificate on board the airplane, that's definitely a red flag. You don't want to make the trip. That airplane may have been subject to some sort of modifications or or there could be questions about its uh, custodial ownership and you just shouldn't go if, if there's no air, airworthiness certificate. Another thing to consider is the pilot's health. Uh, if, the, if there was any evidence that the pilot had been drinking or consuming drugs, you clearly don't want to make a flight with that kind of a pilot. Certainly not, yes. Well, John, many private aircraft charters are booked by brokers. Now, does that middleman situation bring any risk or cause for concern? Well, maybe a little, but what's really important is the pilot and the pilot's qualifications and how carefully the pilot is planned for the flight. And there are a lot of a lot of things a passenger who would otherwise be naive can observe and draw conclusions about whether or not they want to make the flight. I, I just wanted to ask about, um, there was a suggestion as well, John, that we be aware, aware of propeller aircraft in the business aviation community. What, what's the concern there? Well, propellers should be viewed just like you would view a loaded gun. It can start rotating at any time without warning, and you should not be allow your any part of your body to get in the arc of the propeller. Propeller accidents are rare, but they are always very ugly. Mm. Well, expanding on that a little bit, uh, we see that aircraft have different types of power plants, uh, piston, turboprop, jet, so forth. Is the engine type a factor when you're thinking about safety? Well, yes, because uh, a propeller that's driven by a turbine will give some warning before it starts rotating. There's a whine that you can hear, and if you're anywhere near the propeller, when you hear anything in the in or near the engine uh, cowling, you want to definitely get away from that. But what's important is the pilot's attitude about propeller safety. If you're a passenger and the pilot seems to have a casual, uh, zippity-doo-dah kind of attitude about propellers, that's a yellow flag. Your pilot should be very concerned, very concerned about people getting near propellers. I think when people are flying on helicopters, uh, typically there there is an awareness uh, pretty much of the blades. I mean, you see people always ducking down when they don't really need to, I guess, uh, when entering or exiting a helicopter. But aircraft with propellers, yeah, I think people are not as used to uh, taking the cautions that are uh, that are appropriate. And yeah, you would look for the pilot or the ground crew or whoever to uh, sort of assist uh, the passengers with an understanding of, of the safety that's that's required. Another area that is kind of a, of interest to me anyway is with the proliferation of mobile apps, smartphones, and, and all of that. It's very easy for someone to start a business uh, and create an online presence. 
Uh, does that make it more difficult for passengers to evaluate the you know the company and the pilot that they're dealing with? Yes, but again, the focus should be on the pilot more than on the company. When you get on a private airplane, you are putting everything on the line, and your life is in the hands of the pilot. And the pilot could be associated with a very well-known, popular company, but if if the pilot is not behaving in a way that supports safe operations, then your your risk as a passenger goes up. So it really hinges on the the individual, the pilot uh, for that for that flight, and I guess it could be a combination of the training they've received, the experience they have, as well as their condition, mental or physical, just on that day. That's true. All right. Well, talking about pilots, uh, let's kind of talk about the pilot shortage. Uh, We've seen in the commercial airline space, it's been well reported and some have debated over the issue of pilot shortages. But John, what about in business aviation? Uh, What are the characteristic traits of private airplane pilots and how can the business aviation sector retain the best ones? Well, Pilots tend to be successful in other aspects of their lives. They tend to be goal-oriented, and they really don't like to fail. Now, that's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you want somebody who has strong motivations and is goal-oriented. But on the other hand, this this attitude, this goal orientation can work against the pilot. If the pilot is trying to get somewhere, if his goal is to get to a particular airport and the weather starts to get questionable as they get closer and closer to the airport, there's a tendency for some pilots, because they're goal-oriented, to say that they're going to make it to the airport no matter what. And that can work against them. You really want a pilot who can recognize when things are getting dicey and make the decision to not continue. But that's hard. It's hard for people who are goal-oriented to accept defeat (laughs) and not continue with with the flight. What about the pay scale for private aviation? Are they? It, it seems some reports out there suggest that uh, there, that there is a, a pilot shortage in business aviation. That it is a reality. John, are are you hearing the same? Are are there opportunities to to kind of attract the best and brightest, or are they are they losing them to the kind of you know the the higher paying jobs at the commercial airlines? What I'm hearing is that there is a working shortage of certified flight instructors. And I'm starting to see ads and papers and other media uh, for companies looking for to hire flight instructors. And that's new. That hasn't happened in in decades. And that would be a reflection of the overall pilot shortage because if if you don't have enough flight instructors, you can't train new pilots fast enough. Sure. And I'm hearing the same thing, uh, John, but the shortage isn't limited just to flight instructors and pilots, right? The number of mechanics and others in the industry doesn't reach the forecasted need. And I would think that having an appropriately sized population of skilled mechanics would seem to be important. What can you tell us about the, you know, the maintenance of aircraft and how that impacts safety? Well, I th- think it's important if you are an owner-operator of an airplane that you 
get connected with the with a maintenance person that you're really really confident in and in our case there's a um, for our airplane there's a Cessna service center right here in the San Diego area at, at Montgomery Field and uh, boy they're really good they're really good they've they've had factory training that would be a question I would ask if I were locating an airplane or in a different location or if I were buying an airplane I'd want to talk to the person in charge of maintenance to find out where they were trained. In the case of the Cessna service centers, uh, they, Cessna offers, offers training, and the, the mechanics can go to Wichita and get detailed factory, factory training, which is a positive thing. Yeah, for sure. And as for the pilots, too, uh, some airplane manufacturers offer programs for pilots specifically to teach them the nuances of their particular uh, aircraft, uh, to uh, hone their skills, and, and to make them better pilots. Uh, and so that might be another area that uh, you could use to help you evaluate the, the skills and competence of your pilot. Yeah, on the larger, more complex airplanes, the turbines and the jets, the, the manufacturers um, offer pilot training and orientation using sophisticated motion simulators. And um, that's proven to be very useful because the accident rate in business aviation is very, very good. I mean, it's, it's, it's on a par with the airlines as I understand it. Yes, we were talking with uh, Max Trescott uh, just recently, who is a Cirrus uh, pilot and instructor, and he's part of the Cirrus uh, program that uh, provides that kind of training. And he had an interesting uh, statistic that I don't remember exactly, but it was pretty close to uh, taking a look at a group of uh, accidents with that aircraft and um, looking at the the pilots and how many of them were uh, trained by the factory and how many were not. And the, the vast majority, I think it might have been around 80%, but don't quote me on that, uh, were not trained by the factory. So uh, just another indication of the value of that uh, kind of training to the pilot. That's amazing, yeah. Yeah, the Cirrus is a pretty complex, uh, technically advanced aircraft. And if I were going to be a passenger on the Cirrus, it would be comforting to know that the pilot had gone through the Cirrus factory training. It would be uncomfortable to discover that he or she had not gone through that training. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Obviously, Max, and, and you guys discuss this a lot on Airplane Geeks, but you know, one of the reasons why there is a pilot shortage is the sheer cost of getting your license. Yeah. Um, it's a lot to stomach. And, I, you know, obviously there are some good programs out there that are really trying to help, including by some of the airlines and these ab initio programs. But at the end of the day, being shouldering such a financial burden is, and then perhaps entering a job, say, at a regional airline, now appreciating that the regionals have improved pay a bit in the last few years, but it's still, you're starting out on a low pay scale and it's it's a kind of tough old slog, isn't it, for those initial years of your career as a pilot? That remains one of the big issues, right? Yes, but I would speculate, and it is just speculation, that as the pilot sh- pilot shortage intensifies, it'll drive salaries up, so to attract more people. But yeah. that's just a guess on my part. Yeah, we'd we'd like to hope that the yeah the, the supply and demand curve is uh, is going to be in 
in operation here. But uh, yeah, it, it, like you say, Mary, the cost is is pretty significant. Although there are a great number of scholarships out there, of various sorts, and sometimes those can uh, help a lot. Um, but we're seeing fewer pilots come out of the military uh, than in the past, and that has always been kind of a, a great source for skilled pilots. And so we're not we're not getting as many of those into the commercial space. Uh, so it's uh, it's an interesting problem, and uh, but I think that as I said before, it's it's more than just the pilots. You know, it's uh, all of the other support functions and professions that contribute in total to the the safety of your flights. Amen. Just real fast, Max, just real fast, because I think it's a good opportunity to tell our listeners that the Women in Aviation Organization has just announced uh, all of the scholarships and, and programs that they're working, and they're asking now for everybody who's interested in obtaining these scholarships to apply. So I figured I'd just slip that in there. If you're a woman considering uh, entering the aviation field, check out the Women in Aviation website. They've got a long list of scholarships now available. Yeah, that's terrific. Yes, that's good to hear. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about, well, comfort a little bit. The FAA has recently confirmed that it has no intention of setting baseline aircraft seat space standards for commercial flying. Now, in, in response to a rulemaking petition filed by consumer advocacy group Flyers Rights, the U.S. Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C. ordered the FAA last year in March 2017 to take a second look at regulating seat size and passenger room. Well, the FAA has now responded. They say the FAA has no evidence that there is an immediate safety issue necessitating rulemaking at this time. John, you're a longtime pilot. You care about the passenger experience. Do you take a position on whether the government should regulate seat size on airlines? Unless there's a clear safety issue, I'm opposed to regulating seat size on airlines. And I think that what will happen as the airlines make it more and more uncomfortable to ride in their airplanes is that a large number of people will seek alternative air transportation resources, including private planes. Also, you might be interested to know that apparently the FAA is considering softening the ride-sharing and related compensation rules for private airplanes. There, uh-huh. A lot of private airplanes fly around with empty seats, and uh, it would be possible to create a kind of Uber environment where people could get online, find an, an empty seat that's going where they want to go, and make arrangements to ride in that seat for compensation. But that will require some adjustment in aviation, I mean, in federal aviation uh, thinking and attitudes because they've been pretty opposed to any commercialization or commercial operations that involve private pilots. Yes, that's very interesting. Yes, because I think there really is a lot of pent up, well, demand, but also supply for uh, for that kind of service. Uh, you know, some uh, some organizations have formed over the years, some companies that have attempted to uh, get around the, the regulatory situation, but uh, really haven't been very successful at it. I think the FAA could come up with a more liberal um, policy regarding this, this subject that could uh, still 
offer a safe transportation service to the general public who would ride in empty seats that would otherwise be empty. Hmm. I wanted to comment on the comfort issue. Um, in, in our airplane, our passengers rave at the leg room that's available and, and the comfort. And I'm thinking when someone is considering riding in a small private plane versus uh, an airliner, that they, they'd be attracted to the to the comfort of the private airplane seats, which are ergonomically excellent and very comfortable. And in fact, one passenger that we fly with regularly is about 6'4", and he has no problem at all with legroom. So that's what makes me think that as, as airliners become more and more uncomfortable, people are going to be looking around for alternatives. And maybe this uh, softening of the of the rules that we just talked about might make riding in private airplanes more attractive. Well, you know, one of, one of the things that the FAA uh, said in, in this paperwork that it sent to, to flyers' rights was that it did not see the increasing passenger size as an issue of concern. Of course, passengers are getting taller and wider. American Heart Association says 70% of Americans are either overweight or obese, and yet the seats are getting, the seat space, the living space that you've got in the back of the bus is getting tighter and tighter. The FAA says it's not going to set any baseline standards, but that doesn't mean that the issue is put to bed entirely. The FAA right now is under audit by the Department of Transportation Inspector General's office, which wants to know the methodology that the agency has been using to come to these determinations that it's not an unsafe condition. And in this uh, in this report that the FAA filed um, in response uh, to this lawsuit by Flyers Rights, the FAA showcased a number of videos, not of its own videos, by the way. It gave us videos from Airbus, Embraer, and Boeing of partial evacuations. And the videos themselves are not uh, indicative of real life scenarios at all. Now, Max, I don't know. Have you have you seen any of these videos at all? That the FAA put forth? They tend to be uh, populated by volunteers, right? So they, they yes. load up the plane. The objective is to evacuate everyone within 90 seconds. And, of course, they use a, a lot of volunteers who tend to be, well, maybe younger, maybe more <laughs> physically fit. And the argument is not representative of the, you know, the uh, normal, pat well, it's normal, not representative of what you typically find in the cabin, different uh, ages, different infirmities, things like that. Another argument that you hear relating to these videos is that uh, no one is scrambling to get their carry-on baggage over the, or out of the overhead bins. Uh, and in real life situations that that may occur. So there's a bit of an argument as to whether or not the evacuation videos are truly representative or not. Uh, I think that's kind of open, but that's the issue that Flyers Rights has. It's a safety issue. It has to be because the FAA doesn't regulate comfort. The FAA regulates safety. So if Flyers Rights can persuade some court or someone that it is a safety issue, then then they'll make progress. But otherwise, uh, there's kind of nothing there. But it's also worth mentioning that Congress 
could step in. A bill passed by the U.S. House of Representatives earlier this year, uh, if it's enacted, would order the FAA to develop regulations on minimum standards for seat space within a year. It doesn't dictate what those requirements should be or what those standards should be, uh, just that the FAA develop them uh, within a year. So we don't know where that bill is going to go. The, the The Senate may have different different views on that. Yeah, they seem to traditionally have somewhat different views than the, than the House on that particular issue. But, Max, it's interesting. One of the reasons why they, Flyers' Rights has even gotten as far as it has is because lawmakers themselves are starting to be affected by the seat squeeze when they're yeah. flying home. Not to suggest that most of them aren't flying in business, but they do end up in economy on occasion. So they get a little taste of what the rest of us are dealing with. And, I mean, their motivation may be self-interest <laughs> um, to a certain degree agree, uh, not just for their constituents to be comfortable or safe on board. Um, John, any thoughts? Well, it's possible that the FAA and Congress and other authorities could come up with safety improvements that have no impact at all on comfort. Just because they they make the seats wider doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily be more comfortable. Hmm. Yeah. So there's a, there's a trap there. And Mary, we see, uh, perhaps you've seen also that uh, Delta is refurbishing their 777-200 aircraft, and they've decided to go with nine abreast seating in in economy instead of the 10 abreast that we see amongst most of their competitors. Yeah, yeah, this is huge, and and it's kind of a moment in time where you just want to say, okay, I'm putting the pin down right here. This is the moment where Delta has set a standard saying for comfort that nine abreast triple seven, they're going to continue with that. And that's amazing because, like you said, the standard uh, increasingly on the 777 is 10 abreast, and it comes in for very harsh scrutiny by passengers. Uh, similarly, the 9 abreast 787 and the 10 abreast 777, these are the two configurations that, that really get, uh, get a lot of negative comments, and we see a lot of negative comments actually on, on Runway Girl in response to stories about them. Um, and passengers, some passengers saying that they'll never fly some of these configurations again. So it's amazing that Delta has done this. It does beg the question if others will follow suit. It certainly puts carriers that have made comfort um, uh, a a big issue for them and and have set a comfort standard. It certainly reinforces those carriers and their decision-making, including uh, the operators of Airbus aircraft that have a more standard 18-inch, a wider seat on uh, some of these uh, Airbus wide bodies, it, it might also put a little wind in their sails, Max, somewhat perhaps ironically, that, that Delta is keeping the nine abreast on the, on the 777 because that, that also suggests that they've made some good decisions when it comes to ordering their A350 or their uh, A330 at you know nine abreast and eight abreast respectively. So it's, it is interesting times, man. I'll tell you what, when I saw that announcement from Delta, I was hallelujah, <laughs> from complete passenger perspective that's huge thank you delta thank you delta but it looks like well we're rapidly coming to a close and i want to thank our listeners remember you can find us online at runwaygirlnetwork.com and on itunes and on the uh, google podcast 
Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at, at Runway Girl. And remember to use the PaxX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. We'd love to have you. I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, the Jetliner Cabins ebook app. And I'd like to thank John for being our guest. John, where can listeners find you at? Where can we find your book? At uh, www.niceflightjoy.com. Niceflightjoy.com. And the book's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and other book-selling sites. And I believe in several different formats as well, correct? That's true. There's a hardcover, full-color version. There's a softcover, black-and-white version. And then there's an e-version. Very good. John, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And we'll ask all of you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX Podcast. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.